Hope everybody's doing well today. It is Monday, May 24th, 2021, and we are live. Welcome to the African History Network show. Well, it's been a uh, very busy day uh, once again. It was a busy weekend. Uh, we had a great show uh, Sunday night here uh, on the African on the African History Network show. So many of you all heard that. And uh, go back and listen to uh, all these shows at our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and also our YouTube channel, Michael and Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. So uh, on yesterday's show, we talked, um, one of the things we dealt with was um, we talked about the attack on the $4 billion going to African-American farmers in debt relief in the American Rescue Plan. And we talked about how banks uh, are crying foul and claiming that uh, they won't be able to make as much money because uh, the debt is going to be forgiven early. Okay. And we also talked about uh, the attack on education and attack on the 1619 Project and critical race theory. Uh, one of the uh, articles that we talked about briefly yesterday is dealing with the state of Texas. Uh, Texas pushes to obscure the state's history of slavery and racism. Texas pushes to obscure the history. Uh, Texas pushes to obscure the state's history of slavery and racism. This is a big article from the New York Times from um, May 20th, 2021. And we're going to uh, dig further into that uh, today. And I can't stress this enough. Uh, it's extremely important that the accurate history is being taught in schools and that you have people in the state legislatures and in the House representatives in the U.S. Senate uh, who understand history. OK, because their understanding of history shapes the policies that they write and that they vote for and people's understanding, people's understanding of history uh, shapes the uh, policies that they advocate for and who they vote for in political office. So this is uh, extremely important. All right. And, and, and this then what's going on in Texas. One of the reasons why this is so important is because uh, Texas and California have the largest uh, school districts in the country. They have the largest number of students uh, in the country. And Texas, the way Texas and the way California go, as far as what's being taught in the classrooms and the textbooks, what's being taught in the textbooks, this influences what's in the textbooks, okay? This influences the textbooks that are being uh, published. Okay, so what's going on in Texas is extremely, extremely important. This also, this history also ties into uh, the history of the uh, Mexican-American War that we talked about uh, a few days ago, the Mexican-American War, uh, 1846 to 1848. And this is connected to the attack on uh, critical race theory as well as um, the, the, the attack on critical race theory and the 1619 project. Uh, on Sunday's show, I was going to talk about uh, Black Wall Street and entrepreneurs who helped build 
uh, Tulsa's Greenwood District, the business district in Black Wall Street. Um, the, 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 some of the entrepreneurs, we ran out of time. So we're going to deal with that today. History.com has a really good article that deals with um, nine entrepreneurs uh, who helped build the uh, Greenwood District, the Tulsa Greenwood District. And then also uh, May 25th is the one year anniversary of the uh, killing of George Floyd, May 25th. And um, the Floyd family is going to be uh, at the White House to meet with President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Now, contrary to what pe uninformed people on social media are saying, it's not a photo op. Actually, if you uh, read the article that we posted today from uh, theroot.com, uh, President Joe Biden is going to use uh, this meeting to put pressure on the U.S. Senate, specifically Republicans in the U.S. Senate, to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. There's an article from uh, theroot.com uh, sources. George Floyd family's visit to White House will be more than a meet and greet. OK, and so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. This is understanding strategy. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand strategy. And you need 60 votes in the Senate to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which means you need 10 Republicans to vote for the bill. You don't have 10 Republicans that are going to vote for the bill that include that includes uh, repealing qualified immunity. You don't have 10 Republicans to vote to repeal qualified immunity. It doesn't exist. OK, so you have to put pressure on them. And this is why Representative James Clyburn uh, said in an interview, he said, look, if you can't get qualified immunity, you can't come to an agreement on it. OK, then pass the bill without qualified immunity and then come back and get qualified immunity later. He didn't say we don't need qualified immunity. He's understanding the white nationalist party. He's understanding he knows he he, he knows these these people in the Republican Party better than we do because he has to deal with them. He's understanding the white nationalist party. See, you, you, you have to understand not a single Republican in the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate voted for the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that greatly helped white Republicans that voted and put them in office in the first place. It helped Americans in general. It greatly helped a lot of white Republicans, especially white Republicans in poor states, Alabama, Missouri, Louisiana, you know, states like Georgia, Florida. It, it, it greatly helped a lot of them. Not a single Republican in the House or the Senate voted for the American Rescue Plan. So you don't have 10 votes right now in the Senate from Republicans to repeal qualified immunity. So he's dealing with the reality. He's, he, he, so we'll, we'll talk some about this and we'll talk about what's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act also. What's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act as well. All right, so on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct for own behavior, what you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his or her actions 
because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events in history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. The sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. The sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com and sign up for our email newsletter there as well. Um, you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. This is a 12-week, uh, this is a nine-week uh, online course that I teach 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We deal with thousands of years of history and we deal with, with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Um, this past Saturday, my guest speaker was archaeologist uh, Sister Nubia Wartford. Okay. And we dealt with the origins of ancient Kush and African queens of antiquity. And we deal with thousands of years of history, including the 800 year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. And we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We also deal with the African presence in this country going back at least 51,700 years ago that Dr. David M. Hotep talks about in the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. And he talks about the Khoisan, who have the oldest DNA on the planet and come from Southern Africa. And these are the ancestors that I knew in the Twa, and they go all around the world. The short statured people, the Khoisan, they go all around the world. And they were here in this land um, in the area uh, that we call South Carolina going back at least 51,700 years ago. So you can still register for the online course. So, uh, we do the classes live. All the sessions are archived. So you can go back and watch this past Saturday's class uh, as soon as you register. The class is regularly $130 on sale, $80. So you can, uh, it's right on the homepage of our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And it's uh, also on uh, we also just posted the link here as well, so you can register there also. All right, uh, call in numbers 313-778-7600, 313-778-7600 is the call in number. If you have a quick question or comment, 313-778-7600. We're going to jump into, um, going to jump into this first story here, Okay. Uh, we'll jump into this first story here. Texas pushes to obscure the state's history of slavery and racism. All right. So this was a story that I saw uh, from the New York Times. It's a big article from the New York Times from May 20th, 2021. We we talked about this uh, very briefly on uh, Sunday's show. And uh, I wanted to deal with it uh, today because this is an extensive article. And this also is an example of how elections have consequences and how politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and also the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. Politics impacts every aspect of our, of our lives, including what is being taught uh, in school. So if we look at this article here from uh, the New York Times, Texas pushes to obscure the state's history of slavery and racism. Texas is awash in bills 
aimed at fending off critical examinations of the state's past. Now, keep in mind, Texas was admitted into the Union in 1845 as a slaveholding state. Okay, so in the article, it it, it talks about how um, there's a flurry of proposed measures that could soon become law and would promote even greater loyalty to Texas in the state's classrooms and public spaces as Republican lawmakers try to reframe Texas history lessons and play down references to slavery, play down references to slavery and anti-Mexican discrimination that are part of the state's founding. Now, uh, Texas won its independence from Mexico in 1836. And, uh, Texas became a state in the Union in 1845 as a slaveholding state. Text, uh, Mexico had abolished slavery in 18, uh, about, about 1828, 1829, uh, when Vicente Guerrero becomes uh, president. And Vicente Guerrero was of African descent. He was a former slave, of, uh, he was of African descent. And um, when he becomes president, uh, he's going to abolish slavery. There was a uh, a really good article from history doc, not, not history dot com, one from blackpast.org, but also one from um, face to face dot com dealing with uh, Vicente Guerrero. We've talked about this here on the show before. And I'm going to pull this up here from face to face dot com. The first black president of Mexico whose execution shocked uh the nation all right and this is about vicente guerrero and he's going to uh abolish slavery uh this is an article from uh uh, face-to-faceafrica.com january 1st 2020 the first black president of mexico uh whose execution shocked the nation all right and you're going to have um, settlers, this is, it gets into the whole discussion dealing with the Alamo, the Fort the Alamo, where you have uh, U.S. citizens who are, they, they want to have slavery in Texas, but it has been outlawed by uh, uh, Mexico. So you get into this whole d- debate over the Alamo as well, this whole fight over the Alamo uh, in the Alamo Fort uh, against the uh, Mexican army. All right. So uh, check out this article here from uh, history.com. All right, I'm gonna go back to this one here from, um, I'm gonna go back to this one here from um, New York Times. All right, so the proposals in Texas, a state that influences school curriculums, the proposals in Texas, a state that influences school curriculums around the country through its huge textbook market amount to some of the most aggressive efforts to control the teaching of American history, okay? Amount to some of the most aggressive efforts to control the teaching of American history. So whoever controls the teaching of the past will be in control of the trajectory of the future. And this article starts out talking about how Every morning, school children in Texas recite an oath to their state that includes the words, I pledge allegiance to thee, 
Texas one state under God. But Texas came into the union as a slaveholding state. So, see, you can't get away from this history. Now, they go on to talk about how Idaho was the first state to sign into law a measure that would withhold funding from schools that teach such lessons, okay, that teach lessons about the uh, uh, the role of slavery uh, and pervasive effects of racism, okay, things like this. Um, they it goes on to say, and they come as nearly a dozen other Republican-led states seek to ban or limit how the role of slavery and pervasive effects of racism can be taught. This is a tax on teaching about systemic racism, oppression, and things like this in uh, schools. We're going to deal with this on the other side of the break. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation of Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Monday, May 24th, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, so right before the break, we started talking about um, this big article from the New York Times from uh, May 20th, 2021. And it deals with an effort in Texas to whitewash, further whitewash history that's being taught in schools. Uh, and what's so important about what's being taught in Texas and California is that Texas and California have the largest school districts in the country. Uh, and what the way that they go influences the way the textbooks go. And the textbooks that are being published. Okay, so we're going to uh, go back to that story in just a second here. I want to uh, remind you that I will be speaking at the uh, Juneteenth Festival being held in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, the Juneteenth, uh, Juneteenth Atlanta Parade and Musical Festival uh, that's taking place uh, Friday, June 18th through Sunday, uh, June 20th at uh, Centennial Park. Uh, I'll be speaking there again this year, uh, Centennial Olympic Park. Um, so visit the website, uh, JuneteenthATL.com, JuneteenthATL.com for more information. They're going to have uh, headlining events there. I talked to Bob Johnson, the uh, organizer of the event. He told me Angie Stone is going to be performing there again this year. I'll be speaking there. They're going to have a number of speakers. They have usually they have something like a hundred plus uh, African American and African vendors. They have a parade as well. Um, uh, it's a it's a fantastic fantastic festival. There's thousands of people that come through over the three day period. I've never seen anything like this before. Dealing with Juneteenth. Okay, this is in Atlanta, Georgia. Friday, June eighteenth through uh, Sunday, June 20th uh, at Centennial Olympic Park, okay? Uh, visit uh, JuneteenthATL.com for more information. JuneteenthATL.com for more information. You'll hear more about this year uh, as well. So I'll be doing, I'll have a vendor booth there, and I'll be doing presentations dealing with the history of Juneteenth and some other history. You know, I, I tie all this together, and I'll also tie this into uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X and, and Malcolm X calling for a unification of the civil rights leaders um, 
in uh in late uh july um in late July 1963, while, while he was still in the Nation of Islam, the month before the March on Washington. So you don't want to miss my presentations. Uh, you hear more about that as well. OK, let's go back to. This uh, piece right here from The New York Times, Texas pushes to obscure the state's history of slavery and racism. All right. Now, Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821. Then Texas uh, won its independence from Mexico in 1836. And then Texas becomes a state in the Union, a slaveholding state in the Union, uh, comes into the United States as a slaveholding state in 1845. All right. So the, the, the proposals in Texas, a state that influences school curriculums, the proposals in Texas, a state that influences school curriculums around the country, through its huge textbook market amount to some of the most aggressive efforts to control the teaching of American history. And they come as nearly a dozen other Republican led states seek to ban or limit how the role of slavery and pervasive effects of racism can be taught. Okay. Can be taught in schools. So you have Idaho, was the first uh, state to sign into law a measure that would uh, withhold funding from schools that teach such lessons. And lawmakers in Louisiana, New Hampshire, uh, Tennessee have introduced bills that would ban teaching about the enduring legacies of slavery and segregationist laws or that any state uh, or that any state or their country is inherently racist or sexist. Now, see, this ties back into the speech that Senator Tim Scott gave uh, Wednesday, April 28th, 2021, which was the rebuttal speech to the speech that Joe Biden delivered to a joint session of Congress. And people still really don't understand the speech Tim Scott delivered. The speech, as I've said numerous times before, and as I just said on Roland Martin Unfiltered this past Friday, Friday, May 21st, the speech was not the Tim Scott speech. This speech was the GOP rebuttal, the Republican rebuttal to Joe Biden's speech. And this is the mentality, the ideology of the Republican Party. And this and, and the policies that are coming from Republicans, whether at the federal level or the state level, fall in line with the ideology that was in that GOP rebuttal speech. Uh, we heard we heard Tim Scott talk about. Um, right. right at, he, one of the things he talked about was uh, what's being taught in schools. And I've got a. I have it right here. We're going to pull up. Um, let's see. I'll, I'll pull it up. It was an article from the USA Today. One of the things that Tim Scott said was a uh, hundred years ago, kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic. OK. Uh, and if they looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, kids, again, are being taught 
that the color of their skin defines them. And if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. They're an oppressor. So this is directly related to the backlash that we're seeing in state legislatures when it comes to uh, what's being taught in schools and the history of slavery, the history of systemic racism, the attacks on the 1619 Project, the attacks on critical race theory. All of this is connected. People are being distracted by the messenger as opposed to focusing on the message and stopping the entity that's crafting the message and crafting the policies that fall in line with the message. Instead of us talking about stopping the white nationalist party, we're distracted by an errand boy for the white nationalist party. Tim Scott, he's an errand boy for the white nationalist party. We need to be focusing on stopping the white nationalist party, stopping the policies coming from Republicans. Because if you actually study them, they're detrimental to they're detrimental to not just African-Americans, but largely non-white people and including some white people that are detrimental to as well. If you actually study the policies. Read this article here from uh, Washington Post. We talked about it a number of times. Senator Tim Scott's comments on race ignite a fiery debate. The first thing people should do is go through and watch the entire almost 15 minute speech he gave and analyze the speech. Because, as I said before, people are missing even the most important part of the speech. Most important, most important part of the speech is not when he said America is not a racist country. And this is a direct attack on critical race theory and, and things uh, like the teachings that America is an inherently racist uh, country, et cetera, and understanding critical race theory and how the laws uh, and, and dealing with systemic racism and how the laws are inherent with systemic racism and used to oppress African-Americans and people of color. That's not the most important thing that he said in the speech. Most important thing was the next thing he said. Next thing he said was, it's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination. And it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present. You can't have honest debates in the present if you're ignorant of history, number one. See, you, you can't have honest debates in the present if you're ignorant of history and don't want to be honest about history. You can't have honest debates in the present. So when you have, uh, when you have him saying it's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination, this is the ideology of the GOP that's against policies like the $4 billion in debt relief and loan forgiveness for African-American farmers and farmers of color that's in the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that's being attacked not just by Republicans, but also you have white farmers who are suing, claiming discrimination because they can't take advantage of their money. They can't take advantage of the debt relief after they got almost $26 billion in COVID-19 uh, uh, aid from the Trump administration in 2020. And African-American farmers only got one-tenth of one percent. $20.8 million African-American farmers got out of $26 billion. Okay, so um, read, this, uh, read this article here from the Washington Post. Senator Tim Scott's comments on race ignite a fiery debate. All right, now, let's continue here. Uh, I want to go back to this article here from the New York Times. So we see 
Lawmakers in Louisiana, New Hampshire, and Tennessee have introduced bills that will that would ban teaching about the enduring legacies of slavery and segregationist laws, or that any state or the country is inherently racist or sexist. Quote, the idea that history is a project that's decided in the political arena is a recipe for disaster, said uh, Raul Ramos, a historian at the University of Houston who specializes in the American West. He says some of the positioning is politics as usual in Texas, where activists have long organized to imbue textbooks with conservative leanings. And especially after Republican controlled legislative uh, session has advanced hard line, has advanced hard line measures from a host of new voting restrictions to a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. But the Texas history measures have alarmed educators, historians, and activists who said they largely ignore the role of slavery and campaigns of anti-Mexican violence and would fail to educate a generation of students growing up in a state undergoing huge demographic shifts. So what this, what this would do is, is this will cause more insensitivity when it comes to issues pertaining to African-Americans as well as, uh, as, well as uh, Latinos. Because you're going to have a people who are dealing with an even more whitewashed version of history. This will then influences the influence the policies that they vote for and who they vote for political office. So if we let me go back to this here. All right. But the Texas history measures have alarmed educators, historians and activists who said they largely ignore the role of slavery and campaigns of anti-Mexican violence and would fail would fail to educate a generation of students growing up in a state undergoing huge demographic shifts. Because Texas is having a surging non-white population. Now, one of the measures that recently passed the Texas House, largely along party lines, would limit teacher-led discussions of current events. It would limit teacher-led discussions of current events. It would prohibit course credit for political activism or lobbying, and it would, in, uh, uh, which could include students who volunteer for civil rights groups. And it would ban teaching of the 1619 project. Okay, now we just uh, on yesterday's show we talked about how Nicole Hannah Jones is being denied a uh, 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 tenureship as a professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill's uh, journalism school because conservatives on the uh, college board, uh, board of trustees, conservatives are blocking her tenureship because of the 1619 project that she spearheaded for the New York Times. It would also ban teaching the 1619 project an initiative 
by the New York Times that says it aims to reframe U.S. history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of African-Americans at the center of the national narrative. Now, the bill would also limit how teachers in Texas classrooms can discuss the ways in which racism influenced the legal system in the state. It would also limit how teachers in Texas classrooms can discuss the ways in which racism influenced the legal system in the state of Texas. Long a segregationist bastion and the rest of the country. Another bill that sailed through the Texas uh, House, Texas House of Representatives, would create a committee to promote patriotic uh, education about the state's secession from Mexico in 1836, largely by men who were fighting to expand slavery. This is the history of Texas. As I said before, if you go back and watch the, the show we did uh, dealing with the uh, slavery and the Mexican-American War. Mexican-American War from 1846 uh, to 1848. Texas wins its independence from uh, Mexico in 1836, and the Texas Rangers are formed in 1836. But the Texas Rangers, the state police, the Texas Rangers, and, you know, you have the TV show Walker, Texas Ranger with Chuck Norris. You had the old radio show from like the 1940s and 50s called the Texas Rangers uh, starring Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. And then that became a TV show. I think it was a TV show. They had a movie because I'm an old radio show buff. So the, the, the Texas tell, Tales of the Texas Rangers was the old radio show. That's one of my favorite old radio shows. Dragnet, Tales of the Texas Rangers, uh, the Green Hornet. Those are all some of my favorite radio shows. Texas, the Texas Rangers started out as a group of bounty hunters hired by slave owners in Texas to go into Mexico and capture runaway slaves who ran away from Texas because Mexico was free territory. Going back to 1828, 1829, when Vicente Guerrero abolishes slavery, Vicente Guerrero becomes the second president of Texas, um, of Mexico, and abolishes slavery. So you had the Southern Underground Railroad that we've talked about before. The Southern Underground Railroad was Africans running into uh, Mexico, okay, which was free territory as opposed to um, running up uh, as opposed to running up north, okay, on the Underground Railroad as opposed to going up north even after it becomes because the Underground Railroad doesn't start till about 18, right around eighteen thirty. OK, so even when it comes into existence, instead of going up north over a thousand miles, you can just run into Mexico. All right. There's a really good article from. History dot com, official website of the History Channel called uh, the little known underground railroad that ran south to Mexico, the little known underground railroad that ran south to Mexico. And this deals with the Southern Underground Railroad. You also had uh, runaway Africans uh, going into Florida, which was free territory up until 1821, because Florida was Spanish territory, but it becomes U.S. territory right about 1821. Uh, so prior to, you know, 1821, when it's Spanish territory, 
a lot of them are going to run into Florida as well. This we had a Seminole Indian, some uh, some end up going to live, you know, with the Seminoles and things like this. And a lot of Seminoles were, you know, Africans as well. All right. If we look briefly here, and then I want to get to this uh, next story. If we look briefly here, some of the history of Texas uh, independence. Uh, Texas declared their independence March 2nd, 1836. March 2nd, 1836. Uh, read this article here from history.com, uh, dealing with this day in history. Texas declares their independence March 2nd, 1806. The Texans also adopted, uh, so they, they do with the Texas Revolution, uh, but the Texans also adopted a constitution that protected the free practice of slavery, which had been prohibited by Mexican law. Then they start talking about General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Okay, so General Santa Ana, and then this gets into the, the Alamo and the fight between Mexico and the Alamo. Um, in, in San Antonio, Mexi Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana's siege of the, uh, of the Alamo continued, and the fort's 185 or so American defenders waited for the final Mexican assault because in the Alamo, these Americans, right, they wanted to have slavery. Okay, they wanted to have slavery, but uh, uh, Mexico had abolished slavery. Okay, so uh, in eight, so it goes through and deals with this history leading up to uh, Texas uh, independence in 1836, independence from Mexico. All right. Now, in 1821, Mexico gained its independence from Spain. All right. So you have to understand this uh, chronology of history. OK. Uh, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, OK. In 1821, Mexico gained independence from Spain. And Austin negotiated a contract with the new Mexican government that allowed him to. They're talking about. Um, they're talking about uh, uh, Stephen F. Austin in 1820. Moses Austin, a U.S. citizen, asked the Spanish government in Mexico for permission to settle in sparsely populated Texas. So this is when Texas is still Mexican territory. Land was granted. But Moses Austin died soon there soon thereafter. So his son, Stephen F. Austin, took over the project. OK, Stephen F. Austin in 1821, Mexico gained independence from Spain and Stephen F. Austin negotiated a contract with the Mexican with the new Mexican government that allowed him to lead some 300 families to the uh, to the Brazos River. Under the terms of the agreement, the settlers were to be Catholics. Under the terms of the agreements, the settlers were to be Catholics. But Austin mainly brought Protestants from the southern United States. Okay. Other U.S. settlers arrived in succeeding years, and the Americans soon outnumbered the resident Mexicans. In 1826, a conflict between Mexican and American settlers led to the Fredonian Rebellion 
And in 1830, the Mexican government took measures to stop the influx of Americans. In 1830, the Mexican government took measures to stop the influx of Americans. I guess they were being overran with uh, rapists and murderers and criminals. Okay, sounds about right, because that's what was coming from England. If you study the history of the colonies from 1611 to 1783, England emptied its jails and sent the criminals here. If you actually study the history, a lot of them became, you know, indentured servants. In 1833, uh, Stephen F. Austin, who sought statehood for Texas in the Mexican Federation, was in prison after calling on settlers to declare it without the consent of the Mexican Congress. He was released in 1835, okay? And then we know um, uh, 1836, uh, Texas is going to win their independence from Mexico. So read the rest of this, okay? I don't have time to go through all of it, but I just want to give you a little bit of that background uh, uh, history. All right, now, uh, let's go back to this article here from New York Times very quickly here. Um, Texas pushes to obscure the state's history of slavery and racism. Texas pushes to obscure the history of the Texas pushes to obscure the state's history of slavery and racism. It's important to understand that power is the ability to define and shape reality and have other people accept your definition of reality as if it were their own. Now, a third deal would block exhibits at San Antonio's Alamo complex from explaining that major figures in the Texas revolution were slave owners. Why are you trying to whitewash the history? What are you so afraid of? Why are you trying to whitewash the history? Mr. Ramos, who's a, a, a history professor. This is, um, let me go back to it. Well, anyway, um, Mr. Ramos, who's a, a history professor, questioned how the Texas Revolution, a six-month rebellion that concluded in the spring of 1836, could be associated with patriotism and freedom when the state's new constitution explicitly legalized slavery seven years after Mexico had abolished slavery. See, it, and, and, and what happens is you have people who are ignorant of history in the state legislatures and, and the governorship, and they pass these ass-backwards laws. That's Raul Ramos, a historian at the University of uh, Houston, okay? Ra Raul, history professor Raul Ramos questioned how the Texas Revolution, a six-month rebellion, that concluded in the spring of 1836 could be associated with patriotism and freedom when the Texas state constitution explicitly legalized slavery seven years after Mexico abolished slavery. Raul, uh, Professor Raul Ramos said, how do you have freedom when you have slavery? How do you have freedom when you have slavery? He said 1836 values would have enslaved African-Americans in perpetuity. Now, the quarreling over the proposed legislation is testing the limits of Texas exceptionalism, 
with some questioning whether a broad sense of pride among residents should mean glossing over some of the state's most painful chapters. Whether a the quarreling over the proposed legislation is testing the limits of Texas exceptionalism with some questioning whether a broad sense of pride in Texas and the history of Texas among some of the residents should mean glossing over some of the state's most painful chapters. The proposed laws have also stirred ideological battles over everything from the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building, the insurrection led by domestic terrorists, with Texas uh, Republicans voting down a proposal that would have required schools to teach about the insurrection to the immigration status of the white American enslavers who settled illegally in what was the northern Mexico, what was then northern Mexico before figuring among the state's founders because they illegally occupied uh, in Texas the Alamo for they, they that's why they went to war that's why uh, they, they were fighting with Mexico they were there illegally but see see this is why this is why I have a problem when you have certain people that want to call other people illegal in this country. Because if you, if you look at the fight over Texas, if you look at what led to the Mexican-American War, that was European expansion trying to take over the entire North American continent. Then you want to call other people illegal whose land you stole or you instigated a war. OK, and then you and, the, and even though the, the U.S. bought. Uh, the land, the, the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, eighteen forty-eight, which ends the Mexican Mexican American War, the U.S. is going to to pay Mexico uh, about fifteen million dollars for uh, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, California, Utah, Nevada for that territory. Mexico didn't Mexico didn't want to sell the territory in the first place. The U.S. is trying to take over the entire North American continent. Okay, so they. they they instigate this war, this territorial dispute, which leads to the Mexican-American War. And then they're going to, and, and Mexico gave up a third of their land, okay, in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And there's still tensions today between Mexico and the U.S. going back over 150 years ago over what happened. And then, and then you want to call the Mexicans rapists and murderers. And you want to say, oh, they're 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 invading our land. Really? Read the rest of this article here. I, I, I don't have time to go through the rest of it here. Maybe we'll talk about it some more tomorrow or on our Sunday show. But this is deep and this ties into not just the history, but this ties into the trajectory of the future. Texas pushes to obscure the state's history of slavery and racism. Because the Texas school system and the California school system 
influence school curriculums around the country, which then influences the textbooks that are being published around the country. All right, uh, we're going to squeeze in this uh, next story quickly. Um, be sure to register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, because we get deep into it. And um, I can go past two hours if I if I want to. We did two and a half hours this past week, uh, this past Saturday, because we had uh, archaeologist Sister Nubia Wartford as our guest speaker. Uh, the online course is called Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. We do thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Uh, I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have uh, book references, articles, video clips, guest speakers. We do the classes live Saturday, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, it's right on the home page. You can scroll down, you see the information here. Next class is Saturday, May 29th, Saturday, May 29th. Uh, here's the uh, information for the class of Sister Nubia Wartford, African-American female archaeologist. Uh, so you click on register here, it takes you to the next place, click right, click right here to enroll. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. You can watch uh, the class we just did this past Saturday. And um, we have a lot of uh, uh, archive content there for you. We do the classes live. All the sessions are recorded. You can watch from around the world. So it's Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We do thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade uh, taking place. All right. Let me see. Uh, we're going to squeeze in this next article here. Those watching on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Uh, keep watching because uh, we're going to keep broadcasting a few more minutes. Um, the We'll talk briefly, we'll talk very briefly about the uh, Black Wall Street, about nine entrepreneurs entrepreneurs who helped build Tulsa's Black Wall Street. We'll talk about that more tomorrow on, on uh, tomorrow's show. And on tomorrow's show, we'll also talk about the uh, reparations bill dealing with uh, the Tulsa race massacre as well. Okay. All right. We're out of time here on 19 AM Superstation WFDF. Uh, you can also support us uh, through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, and also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, or at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, remember, right now, it's correct, wrong behavior is not over till we win Wakanda forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right, stand by. Okay, uh, we're going to talk briefly here about the uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, what's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? Uh, we know that uh, President Biden gave a, a deadline of May 25th that he wanted the bill passed through Congress. We know it already passed the House of Representatives. It's stuck in the Senate. It's being negotiated. Uh, Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, is negotiating with uh, Democrats. He's negotiating with uh, two members of the Congressional Black Caucus over what's in 
the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Tim Scott is negotiating on behalf of Republicans. Uh, you don't have 10 Republicans in the Senate who are going to vote to repeal uh, qualified immunity. Okay, that doesn't exist. You, you didn't have two Republicans in the Senate to vote for the uh, uh, $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that would help their own constituents and many Republicans that voted for it. You didn't even have that. So uh, this is what we're dealing with. Now, if we look at this article here, uh, this one from NBC News, um, here's what's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And let me pull this up here. Here's what's in the George Floyd uh, Justice in Policing Act. This is from uh, NBCNews.com, um, April 21st, 2021, April 21st, 2021. Then there's also one from uh, TheRoot.com that came out, uh, I think this is from today, yeah, uh, from May 24th, uh, 2021. Uh, sources, George Floyd family's visit to White House will be more than a meet and greet. Um, and this deals with how this is written by Michael Harriet. I'm not a big fan of the route, but they do have some decent articles now and then. Um, this deals with how uh, the president will use the visit of the Floyd family by the Floyd family as an opportunity to push for the passage of police reform legislation currently let languishing in Congress. It's actually in the Senate. It already passed the House of Representatives. It's stuck in the Senate, okay? In stark contrast to, uh, to the previous president, Donald Trump, Benedict Donald, who responded to uh, Floyd's May, 20th, uh, May 2020 uh, death, by noting the tragedy of the quote-unquote white people who were killed by police. Joe Biden will host the uh, Floyd family at the White House on Tuesday, May 25th. The Day of Remembrance will also be used to remind elected officials that there are steps this country can take to blunt the scourge of uh, police violence. Okay, According to sources, with the event scheduled for Tuesday, Vice President Kamala Harris will join uh, uh, President Joe Biden, director of the U.S. Domestic Policy Council, Susan Rice, and senior White House advisor Cedric Richmond, who used to be a member of the Congressional Black Caucus and um, representative from Louisiana. Uh, the attendees are key players in uh, the, the attendees are key players in the ongoing negotiations for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Okay. Um, while the meeting has been painted as a conventional public relations appearance, Biden's main goal is to reaffirm his administration's commitment to police reform, sources say. Read the rest of this article here. Because I, I see a lot of dumbass comments on social media from people that don't read and they're not going to share this type of information with you. OK. And then also you, you still have people who, for some reason, think the. Anti the the anti Asian hate crime bill is just for Asian Americans because they haven't read the bill. Go to Congress.gov and read the bill. First of all, the name of the bill is the COVID nineteen hate crime bill. When you read the actual name of the bill, 
Asian American is not in the name of the bill. It's a COVID-19 hate crime bill. And if you actually read the text of the bill, and you can read the bill at congress.gov, where you can read all the other bills coming from the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. The bill deals with COVID-19 related hate crimes against people regardless of race or ethnicity. It's not specific to Asian Americans. Yes, it was spurred because of a 150% increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans, which was largely related to COVID-19 attacks by Donald Trump on Asian Americans and associating uh, Asian, uh, especially Chinese with coronavirus and things like this. And then you had the killing uh, of uh, a number of Asian Americans at uh, three Atlanta, uh, uh, three spas in the Atlanta area. Okay. So, all, it's spurred by all of that. But when you actually read the text of the bill, that hate crime bill is not specific to African, to, to Asian Americans. It's, it's, it's dealing with COVID-19 related hate crimes, regardless of the race or ethnicity of the people who the crimes are being perpetu perpetuated against. But this is what happens when you don't read. So if we look at this here, um, Uh, NBC News, this is from April 21st, 2021. Also, uh, Monique Presley, who is also on uh, uh, panelists on Rilla Martin Unfiltered, and she's an um, attorney. Uh, on her Instagram page, uh, Monique Presley on Instagram, she did a video today dealing with what's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Um, so this is from uh, April 21st, 2021. Uh, the bill approved by the Democratic-led House in March 2021 has yet to receive a vote in the Senate where 10 Republicans would be needed for passage because of the chamber's 60-vote filibuster rule. They're not going to get rid of the filibuster rule either because Joe Manchin is not going to vote for that. I doubt if Kristen Sinema of Arizona would vote for it either. Uh, so you're going to need 60 votes. Okay, now. Um, the bill aims to end certain police techniques, including choke holds and uh, carotid holds, carotid artery holds, two forms of potentially uh, deadly force. Such practices would be banned at the federal level and uh, federal funding for local and state police agencies would be conditioned on those agencies outlawing, uh, outlawing them. Uh, the bill also seeks to improve police training and invest in community programs designed to improve policing and promote equitable new policies. Now, other provisions in the bill include a ban on no-knock warrants in uh, federal drug cases, as with uh, chokeholds, encourage uh, local and state agencies to comply, comply uh to comply by tying bans to federal funding. And let me pull this up here, okay. A no-knock warrant led to the fatal shooting of 26-year-old Breonna Taylor by police last year in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, the bill would also, in its entirety, uh, end qualified immunity, which protects uh, law enforcement officers from most civil lawsuits. 
the bill would also make it easier to prosecute police officers accused of misconduct by lowering the legal standard from willfulness to recklessness. Right now at the federal level, uh, to charge a police officer, like if they unjustly kill someone, you, you have to prove willful intent. You have to prove that they willfully intended to deprive someone of their civil rights. You have to prove willful intent. Not that they actually did deprive someone of their civil rights. You have to prove that they willfully intended to do it, which is a very high bar to reach. Okay, that's a very high standard to reach. Um, the bill would also prohibit racial, religious, and discriminatory profiling by law enforcement agencies at the local, state, and federal levels. And it would mandate training against such discriminatory profiling. Now, it would require uh, local and state uh, agencies to use existing federal funds to ensure the use of body cameras, require all federal uniformed officers to wear body cameras, and require all uh, marked federal police vehicles use dash cam uh, use dashboard cameras. All right, now I want to look at something here. Let me just, uh, we're going to come back to that in a minute. I want to see something here. I want to see how many, how many Republicans in the, in the House, uh, I want to see how many Republicans in the House of Representatives voted for this. Just as, yeah, because I couldn't remember the exact number. Uh, okay, now I want y'all to pay close attention to this. Okay, share this with your friends that don't understand politics. Okay, re go read this right here. House passes police reform act named for George Floyd. The bill now goes to the Senate where it needs at least 10 Republicans. It would ban neck restraints at a federal level and overhaul qualified immunity. Okay, now this article, this is the original article. This is from March 3rd, 2021. Okay. I want everybody to pay attention to this. Share this with your friends that don't understand politics. Let me pull this up here. Let me flip over to the, this is, th this link is in the first article that I showed you. Okay. House passes police reform act named for George Floyd. Okay. Uh, the bill, the bill now goes to the Senate where it would need 10 Republican votes. This is from March 3rd, 2021. Pay attention to this. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, the bill is H.R. 1280. It passed 220 to 212 in the House of Representatives. 220 to 212 in the House of Representatives. Although a Republican representative said he voted yes by mistake and changed the official record to reflect his opposition. Represented, you had 212 Republicans that voted against the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Representative Lance Gooden, Republican of Texas, tweeted that he pressed the wrong button and voted for the bill by accident. See, this is an example of how elections have consequences. Because if there were seven more Republicans, in the House of Representatives, the bill would not have passed the House of Representatives and it wouldn't be in the Senate right now being negotiated. 
Well, they they could negotiate in the Senate, but it ain't gonna pass the House, so it's not gonna go anywhere. This is an example of how elections have consequences. A version of the bill passed last year in 2020, but stalled in the Senate once again, and 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 uh, Republicans were in control of the Senate in 2020, which was then under Republican control. The House bill passed Wednesday night still has to go to the Senate where it will need at least 10 Republican votes. You didn't have any Republicans that voted for this bill in the House of Representatives. Look at this. Now after now after all these after all these Republicans talked about how bad it was and how George Floyd didn't deserve to die and all this is all this is all so sad what happened to him and thoughts and prayers and 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 and, and teddy bears and and, and lollipops, all this BS. But when it came time to vote, to put policies in place to keep killings like this from happening, they didn't vote for the bill. This is why these trade, now these are some of the same traders that voted not to certify the 2020 election results. You had 147 traders in the in the US House of Representatives, Republicans, who voted not to certify the 2020 election results after after the results were certified by 50 state legislatures. This is an example of how elections have consequences. This is why these traders have to be voted out of office. When it comes to policies that benefit the African American community, they vote against these policies. 212 Republicans voted no. They voted along party lines. I don't think a single Republican voted for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in the House of Representatives. Look at this. Okay? How many people knew this? I don't think a single Republican voted for this after after they did all after they put had all these statements out about how sad it was that George Floyd was killed and he didn't deserve that and it was wrong and all that stuff. When it comes time to change the laws, Republicans voted no. That's in the House. You're dealing with these same dumbasses in the Senate. This is why Representative James Clyburn said what he said. He knows the type of white nationalists he's dealing with in the Republican Party. He knows not a single one of these traitors voted for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in the House of Representatives. You're dealing with dumbasses like that in the Senate also. Now, pay attention on May 25th to statements coming from Republicans especially in the House of Representatives, but also the Senate, who talk about George Floyd and he didn't deserve that and we're so sorry and all that. Ask these... Talk about the cuss. Ask these people in the House, why'd you vote no on the George Floyd Justice and Police in that? See, you can't come and tell African Americans how good your policies are, Republicans. Then when it comes time to vote for policies that we advocate for and are beneficial to us, you vote no. For Republicans in the Senate who are going to put out statements talking about George Floyd on May 25th, the one-year anniversary, you have to ask them, well, are you going to vote for the George Floyd Justice and the Policing Act in the Senate? Are you going to vote to repeal qualified immunity? 
read this article here. Because there's a lot of BS floating around on social media from people that don't read, have no clue what the hell they're talking about. They're not going to show you stuff like this. Read this article from NBC News. House passes police reform act named for George Floyd. Only people that voted for this in the House, House of Representatives were, were Democrats. You may have had a, a one or two independents. I'm not sure. No Republicans voted for this. The one Republican that voted for it, Representative Lance Gooden, Republican of Texas, he voted by accident. He tweeted. He wanted to make sure his people knew, hey, look, I ain't vote for this BS. I'm going to change my vote. I voted by accident. I hit the wrong button. So what does that tell you? Also, people say the Congressional Black Caucus don't do anything. Your ass don't read. Who the hell you think constructed the bill? The Congressional Black Caucus was involved in constructing this bill. You can also go to cbc.house.gov, which is the official website of the Congressional Black Caucus, and you can see what they do. Also at cbc.house.gov, at the end of each year, you know what the Congressional Black Caucus does? They put out a goddamn year in report. That shows what they've done the entire year, the bills they helped get passed, what they've been doing. How often do they do that? At the end of each year. It's called a year in report. At cbc.house.gov. What's that? The official website of the Congressional Black Caucus. What's house.gov? The official website of the House of Representatives. Okay. Let's continue. What about the anti-lynching bill? Anti-lynching bill passed the House of Representatives. It was blocked in the Senate by who? Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky. Blocked the anti-lynching bill. Even Senator Tim Scott voted for it. Even Senator Tim Scott advocated for the anti-lynching bill. Senator Tim Scott, black Republican from South Carolina, advocated for the anti-lynching bill. Senator Kamala Harris advocated for the anti-lynching bill. Senator Cory Booker advocated for the anti-lynching bill. Who the hell you think wrote the damn bill? Who blocked it? Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky. Now, I think, and, and at one point, they put the anti-lynching bill in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, tried to get it passed that way. It got blocked also. Now, what I think they should do is come back. Now, you don't have, I don't, in this climate right here, after, the, after this insurrection, January 6th, and you got Republicans in the Senate that, that don't even support having a bipartisan, um, a, a bipartisan fact-finding mission uh, uh, like the 9-11 Commission. You got Republicans in the Senate that don't even support that. In this climate here, after this insurrection, after Republicans in the House just voted uh, Representative Liz, Liz Cheney out of her uh, leadership position as congressional chair, because she won't go along with the big lie. I don't think you got, I don't think you have 10 Republicans in the Senate that are going to vote for the anti-lynching bill. Now, not in this climate, I don't think. Now, Democrats should come back and try to get it passed anyway. I don't think, I don't think you're going to have 10 Republicans that are going to vote for the anti-lynching bill. Now, they should, but I don't think, I don't think you're going to have that now. We'll see. You you need to have two Republicans that voted for the American Rescue Plan. They helped their own white Republicans that voted for them. They didn't even vote for that. The $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, no Republicans in the House or Senate voted for that bill. 
And see, the anti-lynching bill, if, if you have 10, you, you're going to need 10 Republicans to vote for it. Name me the 10 Republicans you think will vote for the bill. If they vote for that bill, they're going to have to explain why you need an anti-lynching bill. If you understand the lynching, if you understand the history of lynching in this country, and I'm all for the anti-lynching bill passing. I was for the anti-lynching bill passing in 1917 when you had 10,000 African-Americans marching down Fifth Avenue in what's known as the Silent March, organized by, Jane Wel organized by James Weldon Johnson of the NAACP. And that was after the 1917 East Illinois uh, race ride that took place. So uh, uh, the anti federal anti-lynching bill should have passed in 1917. But if they pass an anti-lynching bill, then you're going to have to admit to the history of this country. The only reason why you need an anti-lynching bill is because of white people lynching African-Americans. You don't need an anti-lynching bill because of African-Americans lynching white people. That's not why you need an anti-lynching bill. So if we look at the history of lynchings, um, from uh, 1882 to 1968. And NAACP has some really good information on this. NAACP has a page dealing with the history of lynchings. Okay. Uh, now, I know a lot of people talk about the NAACP, but if you actually go look at what they do, I mean, they do a lot of good work. Uh, people don't read. Go to NAACP.org, a national uh, website. There is, they have a page dealing with the history of lynchings. Uh, let me go here. From 1882 to 1968, there were 4,743 lynchings in America. Where is... History of lynching in America. This is what I want. Um, out of the 4,743 lynchings that took place in America, 72% of the people who were lynched were African Americans. Okay. You had 1,297 white people who were lynched. White people were lynched because the Ku Klux Klan and other, other groups like the Klan, it wasn't just the Klan. The Ku Klux Klan, they were lynching um, white Republicans. Okay, they weren't, it wasn't just African Americans being lynched in this country. This is, this is why it's important to understand history. History shapes policies. Okay, understanding history shapes policies. We don't understand our own history. Half our people still think Willie Lynch historically existed. Willie, Willie, Willie Lynch never historically existed. One, and two, the Willie Lynch letter 1712 has been proven to be a fraud. But if we look at this here, dealing with uh, what are lynchings and history of lynchings, this is at NAACP.org, the official website of the national chapter of NAACP. From 1882 to 1968, 4,743 lynchings occurred in the U.S. This is based upon recorded lynchings, according to records maintained by NAACP. Other accounts, including the Equal Justice Initiative's extensive report on lynching, Count slightly different numbers, okay? But 
That's not important. The most number of lynchings took place in Mississippi. 581 took place in Mississippi. Philadelphia, Mississippi is where you had Goodman, Schwann, and Cheney who were killed June 21st, 1964. I just watched the episode of uh, uh, Godfather of Harlem. That's one of my favorite shows, Godfather of Harlem. Professor James Small, one of my teachers, is the is the is the uh, history consultant on the TV show Godfather of Harlem. At the end of the show, when you watch the credits, you'll see his name, Professor James Small, as a consultant. Um, they just did the episode dealing with uh, the three civil rights workers, Goodman, Schwarner, and Cheney, who were killed. And that's a that's a that's a lynching there also. They were killed June twenty first, nineteen sixty four. Let me just let me just give you just a little background information here. Uh, I like to show there's some historical inaccuracies in the show. Their timeline. If you saw if you saw the episode that uh, yeah I think it was episode six, um, dealing with let me see here because I have it recorded. Episode six uh, for May twenty third, twenty twenty one. Uh, season two, episode six, the ballot or the bullet. So they talked about Malcolm X and the ballot or the bullet, and they show Malcolm delivering the ballot or the bullet. Okay. Their timeline is wrong. Okay. They have Malcolm delivering the ballot or the bullet around the same time that the civil rights workers were killed or right after. Malcolm delivered the ballot or the bullet first, March 29th, 1964. That was three months before the civil rights workers were killed. Malcolm delivered the ballot of the bullet late in the same month that he officially separated from the nation of Islam. Malcolm and Malcolm delivered the ballot of the bullet before he went to Mecca. They have him delivering the ballot of the bullet um, after he gets back from Mecca and after his tour of the um, African nations. And the civil rights workers were killed June 21st, 1964. Malcolm, June 28th, 1964, delivers his by any means necessary speech announcing the organization and formation of the uh, organization of Afro-American unity. That's June 28th, 1964. Their timeline, I, the, the show is good, but it's, it, it's a lot of fiction in there. It, but their timeline is screwed up. Okay. Malcolm delivers the ballot of the bullet first, March 29th, 1964 in Washington Heights, New York. And he's clean shaven because he hasn't gone to Mecca yet. They have him wearing a goatee before he even goes to Mecca. He didn't do that. You know, I know that I know that's not Professor James Small fault because white people are going to do what they want to do. But it's like you, you got to understand this timeline of history. OK. And um, three days before. So Malcolm delivers the Ballad of the Bullet, March 29th, 1964, April 3rd, 1964 in Cleveland, Ohio, April 4th, 1964, right here in Detroit at King Solomon Baptist Church in Detroit. Three days before he first delivered the Ballad of the Bullet, March 26, 1964, Malcolm meets Dr. King for the first and only time at the U.S. Senate debate over the Civil Rights Act. Malcolm is advocating for the strongest Civil Rights Act possible. And Malcolm tells Dr. King, I'm throwing all of my, I'm throwing all of my heart into the effort of the Civil Rights Movement. He tells Dr. King this. Malcolm gets involved in the civil rights movement. If you see, people take excerpts of the Battle of the Bullet. They don't read the damn speech. You got to read the speech. Malcolm is talking about interjecting black nationalism into the civil rights movement. That's one of the themes of the speech. Another theme of the speech is Malcolm is, is saying that uh, the Northern Democrats should kick the Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats, out of the Democratic Party. 
you you got to go read the speech. The speech is on um the speech is online. One, it's in this book here, Malcolm X speech by George Brightman. Okay. They have the version from uh April 3rd and in Cleveland, Ohio, if I remember correctly. The Battle of the Bullet. Let me see here. Because I'm listening to stuff people are saying about the Battle of the Bullet. I can tell they haven't read the speech. Yeah, this is the one, Corey Methodist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, April 3rd, 1964. Also in the speech from March 29, 1964, Malcolm uses the term African-Americans because we were calling ourselves African-Americans in the 1960s. Jesse Jackson didn't come up with the term African-Americans. I don't know who the hell came up with that lie. That's not true. Jesse Jackson reintroduced the term African-Americans. Okay, this is this is Malcolm. Let me show you something here. See, this is what happens when you come listen to a show with a, a, a historian. Okay. Malcolm used the term African-Americans in 1964. And Professor James Small told me personally, he said we were calling ourselves African-Americans in the 1960s. We didn't just start doing that in 88, 89. The term African-American, the earliest recorded usage of the term African-American dates back to uh, 1782 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I think it's the New York Times that has articles dealing with the term African-American is uh, older than we thought. We don't study, we don't understand our history. Okay, now let me see, which one is this? I have the, I have it uh, on YouTube, uh, I have it bookmarked. Let me see, okay, they took that one down. So we can't use that one. Um. I've got the uh, video already downloaded. Let me go to uh, my own archive. I'm looking at what's on YouTube. But I have I have an archive of thousands of videos because I know uh, they're gonna take this stuff off of YouTube and I preserve this stuff here. I have like five, six external hard drives with um, videos and documentation and articles, all different types of things like that. Okay, which one is this one? Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's not it. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? What was your name? It couldn't have been Smith or Jones or Bunch or Powell. That wasn't your name. They don't have those kind of names where you and I came from. No, what was your name? And why don't you now know what your name was then? Where did it go? Where did you lose it? Who took it? And how did he take it? What tongue did you speak? How did the man take your tongue? Where is your history? How did the man wipe out your history? How did the man, what did the man do to make you as dumb as you are right now? African Americans. African Americans, African Americans, or so-called Negro. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that it is bad for us to continue to just refer to ourselves as so-called Negro, that's negative. When we say so-called Negro, that's pointing out what we aren't, but it isn't telling us what we are. We are African, and we happen to be in America. We're not Americans. We are people who formerly were Africans who were kidnapped and brought to America. We...
forefathers weren't the pilgrims. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. The rock was landed on us. We were brought here against our will. We were not brought here to be made citizens. We were not brought here to enjoy the uh, constitutional gifts that they speak so beautifully about today. Because we weren't brought here to be made citizens today, now that we've become awakened to some degree and we begin to ask for those things which they say are supposedly for Americans, they look upon us with hostility and unfriendliness. So our unwanted presence, the fact that we are unwanted, is becoming magnified in all of America's preachments today. Who are you? You don't know. Okay. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? What was your name? It couldn't have been Smith or Jones or Bunch or Powell. That wasn't your name. They don't have those kind of names where you and I came from. No, what was your name? And why don't you now know what your name was then? Where did it go? Where did you lose it? Who took it? And how did he take it? What tongue did you speak? How did the man take your tongue? Where is your history? How did the man wipe out your history? How did the man, what did the man do to make you as dumb as you are right now? African Americans. African Americans. African Americans. Or so-called Negro. Uh, one of the one of the reasons that it is bad for us to continue to just refer to ourselves as so-called Negro that's negative. When we say so-called Negro, that's pointing out what we aren't, but it isn't telling us what we are. We are African, and we happen to be in America. We're not American. We are people who formerly were Africans who were kidnapped and brought to America. We. Our forefathers weren't the pilgrims. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. The rock was landed on us. Okay. Um, read this one here. I've got the... Um, okay, this is, this is the Battle of the Bullet from March 29th, 1964. This is when he first delivers it. This is in Washington Heights, New York. The clip that I just played, I think that's from, I'm pretty sure that's from March 29th, 1964 also, the Battle of the Bullet. But even even in the uh, even in the one from uh, April 3rd, 64, the Battle of the Bullet from April 3rd, 64. Uh, if we look here, page 36 of Malcolm X Speaks but, uh, with prefatory notes by George Brightman. Malcolm says, right, right now in this country, if you and I, 22 million African-Americans, that's what we are, Africans who are in America. You're no, he says, you're nothing but Africans, nothing but Africans. He said, in fact, you get farther calling yourself African instead of Negro. He said, Africans don't catch hell. He said, you're the only one catching hell. They don't have to pass civil rights bills for Africans. An African can go anywhere he wants right now. All you have to do is tie your head up 
That's right. Go anywhere you want. Just stop being just stop being a Negro. Okay. He said you can change your name to an African name. That'll show you how silly the white man is. You're dealing with a silly man. He said a friend of mine who's very dark put a turban on his head and went into a restaurant in Atlanta before they called themselves desegregated. He went into a white restaurant. He sat down. They served him. And he said, what would happen if a Negro came in here? And there and there he is sitting black as night. But because he had his head wrapped up, the waitress looked back at him and says, quote, why? There wouldn't be no N word. They're coming here. End quote. See, this go this ties into a history of when. African-Americans wore turbans and adopted a uh, foreign dialect to navigate throughout the Jim Crow laws, because you could be our complexion. You can be dark black African and be from an African nation and wear a turban or be a head of state or something like that and circumvent the Jim Crow laws. Okay. This is page 36. Look at this. I don't, um, let me see. Can we get up right up here? 22 million African-Americans. This is Malcolm X, 1964. This is April 3rd, 64. We were using the term African-Americans then. That's not a new term. And then the, and then the term Afro-American dates back to the 1830s. These are not new terms. These are old arguments. Okay, so now um, I'm going to post this link here. This is to the uh, speech, the Battle of the Bullet from March 29th, 1964. We've got to read this. We can't, we can't just listen to excerpts. Okay, that's lazy ass stuff. That's not how my teachers taught me. My teachers are Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Professor James Small, Professor Kabahaya Wapakamane, Dr. Ray Hagen, Dr. Ray Higgins, Dr. Claude Anderson. You, you got to go get into this information. You got to tear this stuff apart. You got to read this. You can't go off of excerpts and headlines. Okay, um, read this. Uh, we'll post this link here. This is to the text of the, uh, some of the speech, Battle of the Bullet. I can't remember if this is the entire speech or not. So I looked at this some time ago. Blackpass.org has uh, 6,000 pages of articles dealing with African history and African-American history, blackpass.org. And June 28, 1964, they have the speech that Malcolm delivered dealing with the uh, organization, uh, dealing with the uh, formation of the organization of Afro-American unity. March, uh, I'm sorry, uh, June 28, 1964. That, that's the speech where Malcolm talks about by any means necessary. And we, we just talked about that speech uh, actually on Malcolm's birthday, May 19th. And I showed you some of the speech and I showed you the five points, uh, the five platforms of the Organization of Afro-American Unity that Malcolm uh, laid out. But uh, let me see something here. A couple of quick things and then uh, I got to get out of here. I have a lot of work to do. Let me see. There's, there's the article uh, from New York Times, I think it is. Yeah, the term African-American is older than we thought. It dates back to 1781, 1782, I think it is. 1782, May 15, 1782, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's right. Uh, read this article here. And also, if you like this type of information here, 
the online course that I teach, when I don't have to deal with time constraints, really, is going to blow you away. Okay, so be sure to register for the online course that I, that I teach because it's very time consuming to teach the class. I'm, I'm constantly um, reinventing the class and adding more content. We just we just went through a timeline of history the past uh, couple of weeks dealing with going back five million years ago and putting all this stuff in chronological order. Okay, um, read this article here. The term African-American appears earlier than thought reporters notebook. The term African-American appears earlier than thought. Um, this is from the New York Times. And let me go over here and close out some of these tabs. I got like 35 tabs open here in, in uh, Google Chrome. The term African-American appears earlier than thought. Reporter's notebook. This is from April 21st, 2015. Uh, an ad in the Philadelphia, an ad in the Pennsylvania Journal on May 15, 1782, used the term African American. Okay, and it was advertising two sermons written by the African American, one on the capture of Lord Cornwallis to be sold. Okay, the, by uh, by A. Smith and uh, Woodhouse W. Woodhouse, etc. Uh, go read this. The term African-American, Jesse Jackson, I hear people say, Jesse Jackson invented the term African-American. Get the hell out of here with that. The 1782 advertisement in a Philadelphia newspaper for two sermons written by an African-American. That was half a century before the earliest known written occurrence of the term as listed in the Oxford English Dictionary. Quote, I was surprised to find it 53 years before anyone had known. So even before this discovery, we knew that the term African-American was used long before Jesse Jackson and a group of uh, African-American political scientists and attorneys reintroduced the term in the late 80s. They didn't create this. Come on. So go, go read this also. This is the New York Times. New York Times has two articles dealing with this topic. Then the term, then the term uh, Afro-American, that goes back to the 1830s. You had organizations like the uh, National African-American League founded in 18, about 1892. You had the Afro-American Council founded in uh, 1898 by uh T. Thomas Fortune and uh, Bishop Alexander Walters. Okay, you had the Afro American newspaper founded about 1882 in Baltimore. They they were called Afro American. See, we don't we don't understand our history. This is why we're in the condition we are today. And those that don't know their history are destined to repeat it. Uh, and whoever controls the Teaching of the history controls the trajectory of the future. Okay, now, also, it's important to understand, I know Malcolm talked about we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us, things like this. This was our land stolen from us, okay? It's just, it's important to understand this. This was, African people have been in this land going back tens of thousands of years ago. 
Okay, this was our land stolen from us. This does not mean the transatlantic slave trade did not happen. Yes, it did happen. It just means we were here for tens of thousands of years before we were told that we originally came here. Okay, this is why, um, and I called out to David M. Hotep today. I left him a message because um, I want him to um, uh, speak to my class again. This is why this book is so important. And this information comes from Dr. David M. Hotep and his new book is about to come out. I got to check with him on it. Uh, his new book is, should be out any, any week now. The first Americans for Africans documented evidence in 2011. Okay. And on page 14 of his book, when I first found out about this book in 2011 and I contacted Dr. David M. Hotep, I told him, your book can single-handedly destroy white supremacy and racism. Page 14 of his book talks about a discovery by Dr. Albert Goodyear by Dr. Albert Goodyear and Dr. Albert Goodyear is an archaeologist at the University of South Carolina. This was a discovery from 2004. Okay, it was 17 years ago. In Allendale County, South Carolina at a campsite, they found 13 different types of evidence to document an African presence in this country dating back at least 51,700 years ago. They found artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, Egyptian writings, Footprints in lava, genetic M174D haploid groups dealing with dealing with DNA and genetics, linguistics, paintings, skulls, skeletons, structures, and tools. They found 13 different types of evidence fairly documenting an African presence in this country going, going back at least 51,700 years ago. These were the Khoisan who come from Southern Africa. They have the oldest DNA on the planet. They go all around the world. They're the ancestors to the Ainu and the Twa. This is before the people who we call Native Americans come into existence. There were African people here. Okay. This was our land stolen from us. This is why uh this this is this is why when people say, oh, we need to separate, I say, okay. Uh now why should we be the ones that leave? We were here before anybody else was here. Yes, the transatlantic slave trade happened. I'm not saying it did not happen. It just happened tens of thousands of years after we first came to this land. Read this article here from ScienceDaily.com. Uh, ScienceDaily.com. Uh, uh, this is from November 18, 2004. Name of this article, New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. And it's about the discovery from Dr. Albert Goodyear. This is a picture of Dr. Albert Goodyear, archaeologist at the University of South Carolina. This is a summary of the article from ScienceDaily.com, which is a scientific website. They have all types of scientific archaeological discoveries there. Radiocarbon tests of carbonized plant remains where artifacts were unearthed last May along the Savannah River in Allendale County by University of South Carolina archaeologist Dr. Albert Goodyear indicate that the sediments containing these artifacts are at least at least 50,000 years old, meaning that humans inhabited North America long before the last ice age. Who are these humans? Europeans don't exist at this time. Native Americans don't exist at this time. Who are these humans? These are African people here in the U.S. In, in, in the online course I teach, we deal with numerous archaeological discoveries. We deal with archaeological discoveries older than this. I'm telling you, it's a deep history. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see here. There's one other thing I wanted to show you. Okay. Um, let, me, let me post the link here. You can register for the online course uh, that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, we do the class live, but all the classes are recorded. So you can go back and watch them over and over again. So if you miss the class or miss some of it, it's fine. You can, all the sessions are archived. As soon as you register, you can watch 
the uh, class we just did uh, this past Saturday. And our guest speaker was archaeologist uh, Nubia Wartford, African-American female uh, archaeologist. She travels to the Sudan to do archaeological digs. We did. We dealt with the origins of ancient Kush and the African queens of antiquity. So we posted the link here. Okay. Uh, let me see here. There was, do, 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 okay, I showed you that Dr. David M. Hotel, but there was um, this article here that we talked about this on Malcolm's birthday. And we dealt with Malcolm when he leads the nation of Islam, getting involved in the um, civil rights movement also. Because uh, a lot of people don't really understand uh, Malcolm when he leads the nation. That's a, that's a, a critical, critical piece of uh, time of his life because his ideology is constantly evolving. And he goes he goes to Mecca and he's going to uh, come back and organize the uh, organization of Afro-American unity. Um, and Dr. John Henrik Clark is going to be one of the ones who uh, help him organize um, the organization as well as uh, Maya Angelou, because he uh, meets Maya Angelou in Ghana in uh, 1964. Okay, let's see, here we go. Let's look at this quickly here. Now there's a big article from Washington Post that you hear me talk about oftentimes dealing with uh, the day Dr. King met Malcolm X. But this is, Pretty good here also. This is from PBS.org, American Experience. American Experience from PBS.org. Oh, before I forget, uh, this book right here helps to um, really, it helps us to better understand Dr. King and Malcolm X because toward the end of both of their lives, their ideologies are converging. This book here by James H. Cone, this masterpiece, Martin Malcolm in America, A Dream or a Nightmare, this documents how their ideologies are converging toward the end of both of their lives, and they're sounding like each other. Martin Malcolm in America, A Dream or a Nightmare by James H. Cone. I know uh, Peniel Joseph uh, just had a book out. I'm trying to get him on the show also with Facebook friends. Um, I saw him on MSNBC uh, talking about his book he just did on Dr. King and Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm and the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, let me see. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I don't have time for that. It's just something I wonder what's going. Okay, changing times, changes the nation. Muhammad Ali, no one will have Oh, also in also in um um. Godfather of Harlem. They show they show Malcolm in uh, at uh, Cassius Clay's uh, training camp in '64, uh, training to fight Sonny Liston. They show him at Cassius Clay's training camp, and he's wearing a goatee. Malcolm was clean shaven. Then go look at those pictures of Malcolm and, and Cassius Clay. Malcolm was clean shaven. Uh, Cassius Clay wins the. Uh, championship February 25th, 1964, defeats Sonny Liston. Then shortly after that, he announces uh, he's joined the Nation of Islam, announces his new name, Muhammad Ali. 
Malcolm is clean shaven. Malcolm hasn't left for uh, Malcolm. Malcolm is still in, Malcolm is still in the nation. He's he's suspended from the nation, but he's still a member of the nation. He hasn't separated from the nation yet, and he hasn't gone to Mecca yet either. He's clean shaven when you look at those pictures. So that that, that it's little um, their timelines. They're converging different things all together at one time, and it, you. It, you can't do that. There, there was um, there was one episode when they're dealing with the the march on Washington, and Adam Clayton Powell, uh, played by uh, Giancarlo Esposito, and Giancarlo Esposito does an excellent job, and uh, uh, the brother uh, who play uh, Nigel, who plays uh, uh, Malcolm X, he's doing an excellent job playing Malcolm, and Forrest Whitaker is doing an excellent job playing um, Bumpy Johnson, but there was a scene. And they're organizing the March on Washington, which was August 28th, 1963. And they're in, I think they were in uh, Adam Clayton Powell's office. And he's talking about um, four little girls who were killed in the bombing at a church. Okay. Well, that didn't happen before the March on Washington happened. They're preparing for the March on Washington. Okay. That happened about three weeks after the March on Washington happened. All right. That's uh, that's uh, September uh, 15th, 1963, that that took place. The church bombing. OK, in Birmingham, Alabama. That's September 15th, 1963. That happens after the March on Washington. They have them preparing for the March on Washington, talking about four little girls bombed in the church. The, the timeline's off. So let's look at this quickly here. I have to get out of here. No longer adversaries. Bit by bit, Malcolm began a process of engagement with the with the civil rights movement. He went to uh, Washington, D.C. and witnessed the debate on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. OK, and. This is three days before Malcolm first delivers the Ballad of the Bullet. He delivered it March 29th, 1964, in Washington Heights, New York. That's after that's three days after he met Dr. King and witnessed the uh, U.S. Senate debate on the Civil Rights Act. And Malcolm was calling for the strongest Civil Rights Act that we could get passed. Malcolm tells Dr. King, I'm throwing myself into the heart of the civil rights struggle. This was March 26, 1964, when he met Dr. King. Where previously his separatism had meant no interest in voting, he now told Mississippi youth that he was with voter registration efforts, quote unquote, 1000 percent. And he talks about voter registration and voting strategically in uh, his speech, June 28th, 1964, when he lays out the platform of the Organization of Afro-American Unity. Uh, Malcolm accepted an invitation from SNCC through the Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to speak in Selma, Alabama, and had conciliatory words for Coretta Scott King, whose husband was then in jail, because Malcolm went to go meet with Coretta Scott King when, he's, when he goes to Alabama to speak to SNCC. He said, quote, I want, to, uh, I want Dr. King to know that I don't come to Selma to make his job difficult, Malcolm said. Quote, if the white people realize what the alternative is. Now, see, this is Malcolm, okay? This is what a lot of people that talk about Dr. King Malcolm don't want to say. Malcolm said, quote, if the white people realize what the alternative is, 
perhaps they will be more willing to hear Dr. King. This is what happens when you do research. Malcolm said, if the white people realize what the alternative is, perhaps they would be more willing to hear Dr. King. That's why this book here is so crucial. Martin Malcolm in America, a dream or a nightmare. Now, when uh, Malcolm is assassinated, Dr. King sends a telegram to Betty Shabazz. In the telegram, Malcolm said, I mean, Dr. King said in the telegram, while we did not always see eye to eye on methods to solve the race problem, I always had a deep affection for Malcolm and felt he had a great ability to put his finger on the existence and root of the problem. He was an eloquent spokesman for his point of view, and no one can honestly doubt that Malcolm had a great concern for the problems we face as a race. This is Dr. King talking about Malcolm. In a telegram, he sent to, Coretta, to uh, uh, Betty Shabazz uh, after Malcolm was assassinated. Okay, so read this right here, uh, Malcolm and the Civil Rights Movement. And once again, one of the things that Malcolm is talking about in the Battle of the Bullet is interjecting black nationalism into the Civil Rights Movement and radicalizing the Civil Rights Movement. Then uh, you can read this masterpiece of an article here. Uh, this one is, uh, what is this one? This is the one dealing with uh, the day Dr. King met Malcolm X. This is right here. It's a great article. I deal with this in lectures and things like that. This is from um, uh, Washington Post. Martin Luther King Jr. met Malcolm X just once. The photo still haunts us with what was lost. Okay, so Malcolm is clean shaven here, March 26, 1964. March 29th, 1964, when he delivers the Battle of the Bullet in Washington Heights, New York, he's clean shaven because he hadn't gone, he hasn't left for Mecca yet. Uh, Malcolm told Dr. King, I'm throwing myself into the heart of the civil rights struggle. July 31st, 1963, the month before the March on Washington. Malcolm is still in the nation of Islam. Malcolm is calling for a unification of the civil rights leaders and their followers. We haven't researched Malcolm. We haven't researched Dr. King either. Dr. King wrote five books. I'm listening to stuff people saying about Dr. King. I'm like, which, doc, which king are you talking about? You talking about Dr. King or B.B. King? What the hell are you talking about? Malcolm sends a letter to the leading civil rights leaders, July 31st, 1963, requesting a meeting with them. And he's saying that they have to unite. And he's saying they have to find a common solution to a common problem posed by a common enemy. Okay, this is uh, the seriousness of the situation. Uh, demands immediate steps must be taken to solve this crucial problem by those who have genuine concerns before the racial powder keg. Okay, uh, the present racial crisis in this country carries within it powerful destructive ingredients that may soon erupt into an uncontrollable explosion 
This, this is Malcolm reaching out to the big six civil rights leaders. While he's in the Nation of Islam, this is, this is July 31st, 1963. This is the month before the March on Washington. He's asking for a meeting. Okay, Malcolm X sent a letter to Dr. King requesting a meeting. Despite the, okay, uh, let me skip through this for the sake of time. Malcolm was inviting them to a rally in Harlem. It was going to take place in 63. Uh, and it, in this letter, he says that we have to find a common solution to a common problem posed by a common enemy. Okay. Malcolm says that if Nikita Khrushchev, it, it, he says, uh, citing a meeting between President John F. Kennedy and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Okay. Malcolm said, despite their tremendous ideological differences, it's a disgrace for Negro leaders not to be able to submerge our minor differences in order to seek a common solution to a common problem posed by a common enemy. This is, this is Malcolm, July 31st, 1963, while he's still in the Nation of Islam. All right, let me see where the hell that thing go. Right here. Malcolm is calling for a unification of the civil rights leaders and their followers. When you go read this. Now, Doc, uh, uh, he, he closed the letter. He requested that if Dr. King could not attend the meeting, that he would send a representative. He closed the letter with the endearment, your brother Malcolm X. Dr. K Dr. King declined the invitation and did not send a representative according to the book, Malcolm and the Cross, the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X and Christianity by Louis A. DeCaro Jr. The March on Washington took place August 28, 1963. About 250,000 people there. Malcolm went to the March on Washington. He called it the farce on Washington. It, was, it wasn't a farce. They were calling out white supremacy and racism. Malcolm, dude, John Lewis' speech was so radical, they, uh, they asked him to tone down his speech. John Lewis was, was, was going to call out police brutality. His speech was so radical, A. Philip Randolph asked him to tone down his speech. Dr. King called out police brutality, among other things, because when you actually read the, his, his, Dr. King's entire speech, which was not called I Have a Dream, that's not the name of the speech. The name of the speech was called, at first it was called Normalcy Never Again, then it was called a canceled check. Because Dr. King was calling out America on its hypocrisy and he said we were given a promissory note 100 years ago in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation. And then when we take that promissory note to the bank to cash it is marked insufficient funds. And he's calling America out on this hypocrisy and he's talking about dismantling white supremacy. What happens is Mahalia Jackson, towards the end of the speech, Mahalia Jackson says, tell them about the dream, Martin, tell them about the dream. So then he shifts. And he starts talking about the beloved community, but that's what comes into existence after you dismantle white supremacy and racism. Because he starts referring to a previous speech. He gave a, he gave a precursor to the speech on the March on Washington. He gave that, he gave a precursor to it in uh, June of um, 63, June of 63 here in Detroit. The speech wasn't about no dream. The speech is about dismantling white supremacy and holding America accountable for a promise they gave us 100 years prior. The beloved community 
where white children and black children can hold hands, all this stuff. That's what happens after you dismantle white supremacy. People skip over his critique of America's hypocrisy and go to white children holding hands and the content of the character and all this stuff. You read the speech, he's talking about dismantling white supremacy. He talks about, you know, um, uh, uh, we can't wait while the Negro in the South can't vote and the Negro in the North has nothing to vote for. Uh, he, he calls out police brutality. He talks about moving from a smaller ghetto to a larger ghetto. He, he talks about segregation, all this stuff in the speech. Okay, uh, also, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Uh, if you donate through YouTube, I saw somebody donate through YouTube. Thanks for your donation. But YouTube takes a third of the payment, just so you know. Um, so if you can only do it through YouTube, we appreciate that. But you do do Cash App. When you do it through Cash App, be sure to do uh, type in dollar sign the AHN show, S-H-O-W. Uh, unless you uh, click on the link that we just posted here, and it'll when you uh, type in the full, the dollar sign, and when you type in dollar sign the A H N show S H O W, it'll show uh, my picture, and it'll say it'll say Michael and show my picture there. Somebody set up a a, a fake African History Network Cash App account using my logo. There's in in their handle is similar to mine, but it's not me. So I've already reported them to Cash App and waiting on them to shut down that account. Okay, so we've got that, and that's a read the article from Washington Post. Uh, the lynchings, read that also. The lynchings as well that we talked about um, from uh, NAACP.org, dealing with the history of lynchings. Um, getting the anti-lynching bill passed and needing 60 votes in the Senate, that's an uphill battle. Now, what we should what we should be focused on is identifying 10 Republicans who we could pressure to push to vote for the bill. You may need 11 because I don't, I don't know if Joe Manchin from West Virginia is going to vote for the bill. The three, uh, there were 3,446 African-Americans who were lynched to about 72% of the lynchings between 1882 to 1968. There were 1,297 white people lynched, okay, as well. Uh, but they weren't the only victims, when they talk about African-Americans, they weren't the only victims of lynching. Some white people were lynched for helping black people or for being anti-lynching. Immigrants from Mexico, China, Australia, and other countries were also lynched. We don't understand history. Americans are very ignorant of history. Mexicans were lynched. Chinese were lynched. White people were lynched in this country. Yes, they were. But 72% of the people who were lynched were African-Americans. So the only reason why you need an anti-lynching bill is because of white people lynching African-Americans. So if they, if, if, if they vote, and if you look at where the lynchings took place, the majority of them, the number one state that had, the uh, number one state for lynchings was Mississippi. That's where Emmett Till was, was lynched, August 28th, uh, 1955. Okay, in Money, Mississippi, 581 recorded lynchings in Mississippi. Georgia was second with 531. Georgia is where you have the largest Confederate monument in the country. It's called Stone Mountain. 
That's the largest Confederate monument in the country right now and for years. Stone Mountain, Texas. Texas had 493 lynchings. Hell, Texas was admitted into the Union in 1845 as a slaveholding state. Lynchings did not occur in every state. There are no recorded lynchings in Arizona, Idaho, Maine, Nevada, South Dakota, Vermont, and Wisconsin. Okay, read the rest of this. This is from NAACP.org. History of lynching in America. This is the official website of the NAACP. All right, be sure to register for the online course that I teach uh, on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. We get through we deal with all this type of information. Uh, we were talking about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Let me go back to that quickly. All this history is so connected. This, this is so uh, deeply tied into the laws and policies that are being debated today and what's going on today. Okay. Uh, let me finish with uh, this right here, and then we really got to get out of here. Uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, we're going to go back to what's in it. Okay. This is from NBCnews.com. You can read the bill or a summary of the bill at Congress.gov, just like any other bill that comes out of the House of Representatives or U.S. Senate. You can read all that at Congress.gov, including the COVID-19 hate crime bill that people call it the uh, – Asian hate crime bill. That's not the name of the bill. It's the COVID-19 hate crime bill. The, the, the hate crimes are not specific to Asian Americans. It's COVID-19 related hate crimes, regardless of race or ethnicity. It's not specific to Asian Americans if you actually read the text of the bill. So uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed the House of Representatives uh, that was uh, March 3rd, 2021. No Republicans voted for the bill, except one guy, Representative Lance Gooden, Republican of Texas, Hingham High, Texas. He said he voted by mistake and changed his vote. No Republicans voted for this bill. Okay, so you so watch May 25th. How many Republicans come out and talk about all oh, the so we're so sorry about George Floyd and all his family and his little girl and all this. Uh, you gonna vote for the? Why'd you vote against the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act then? If you're in the House and in the Senate, you are gonna vote for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? If not, shut the hell up. We don't want to hear that nonsense. Yeah, that was Wednesday, March third. Okay, so this one here deals with House passes. Police Reform Act named after George Floyd. And then uh, before that, we were dealing with the actually what's in the bill. Here's what here's what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would do. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power and resources and the writing of law, statutes, ordinances, amendments and treaties, adoption, interpretation and enforcement. So uh, we were talking about some of the things that George Floyd Justice and the Policing Act would do. It would also prohibit racial, religious and discriminatory profiling by law enforcement agencies at the local, state and federal levels and mandate training against such discriminatory profiling. You're dealing with, dealing with racial profiling. It will require local and state police agencies to use existing federal funds to ensure the use of body cameras 
ensure the use of body cameras, uh, re require all federal uniform officers to wear body cameras, and require all marked federal police vehicles to use dash dashboard cameras. It would create a national police misconduct registry to prevent police officers who are fired or pushed out for bad performance from being hired by other agencies. It would create a national police misconduct registry to prevent police officers who are fired or pushed out for bad performance from being hired by other agencies. Because as it is now, they could go kill somebody unjustly, okay, in, 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 in one police department and then go a few miles or 10 miles or 20 miles to another city, another police department and, and apply there and get hired in. There's no national registry to say, look, this person did this over here in this police department. Don't hire them. Okay. You need this national registry. It would use federal grants to help communities establish commissions and take and, and task force to study police reforms. It would address militarization by limiting police mil militarization by limiting how much military grade equipment is awarded to state and local law enforcement agencies. Now, President Obama uh, did that. Uh, uh, there was a, uh, he reduced the amount of uh, military weapons going to, uh, military grade weapons going to police departments. That was something that came out of the protests out of Ferguson, Missouri. Donald Trump reversed that, okay? Now, Joe Biden has flipped that back to go back to what President Obama put in place. Enhanced pattern and practice investigations of police departments, granting the Justice Department subpoena power and establishing grant programs for state attorneys general to conduct to conduct their own probes, to conduct their own probes. Now, this deals with the ability to investigate police departments. OK, the patterns and practice investigations. There were 24 or 25 investigations into the patterns and practices of police departments under the Obama administration, which led to about 14 or 15 consent decrees. There was one pattern, pattern and practice investigation under the Trump administration because Trump took a, uh, a hands-off approach to policing. This is why a lot of police officers voted for Trump and why a lot of police unions, et cetera, supported Trump. He took a hands-off approach to policing. Under Joe Biden and Attorney General Merrick Garland, they've gone back to what the uh, Obama administration is doing and investigating police departments and focused on holding them accountable, reversing a lot of this nonsense from the Trump administration. So there was one investigation into the patterns and practices of police departments in the four years of Trump. There have been two investigations announced in five days under Attorney General Mary Garland. One for uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and the other for, I think it was Minneapolis, Minneapolis Police Department. Minneapolis Police Department and Louisville, Kentucky, because of the killing of Breonna Taylor. There were two investigations into the police departments announced in five days under Attorney General Mary Garland, who was nominated by Joe Biden. Under the Trump administration, there was one investigation in four years. 
and you got Negroes telling us don't vote. You know, whatever. Uh, now, let's continue here. Several Republicans, including Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina and Rand Paul of Kentucky, have offered alternate proposals to address police misconduct. Representative Karen Bass, Democrat of California, the sponsor of the George Floyd bill. She's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, by the way. She's a sponsor of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, Representative Karen Bass, a Democrat from California, African-American woman, the sponsor of the George Floyd bill, said after the House moved the legislation in March that she is confident the House and the Senate can work toward a compromise. So she is involved in negotiating with Tim Scott uh, exactly what's in the Senate version of the bill. It already passed the House. Now the Senate has to vote on it. And um, I don't think qualified immunity is going to make it in there. I don't think it's going to make it in there. But I'm with Clyburn on this. If you can't come to agreement on qualified immunity, all this other stuff in the bill, get this stuff passed. Then come back later and deal with qualified immunity. You're dealing with irrational people in the first damn place. All this stuff in the bill, get the rest of this stuff passed. Most people don't know what's in the damn bill. That's the problem. Okay, so read this here. Here's what's Here's what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would do. This is from April 21st, 2021, NBC News. Here's what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would do. Okay, lastly, here's the number to the congressional switchboard. So you can call your member of the U.S. Senate. And tell them to vote for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And you can tell them why. You can look at this article and you can go one, two, three, four, five and tell them what's in the bill and tell them why you want them to vote for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Now, call your member of the U.S. Senate. Don't do any good to call uh, a member of the U.S. Senate in a state that you don't live in because you can't vote them out of office. You call. Your members of the U.S. Senate, each state has two members of the Senate. You call your U.S. Senator in your state, uh, 202-224, because I have it in my phone. I'll call the Congressional Switchboard and talk to my members of Congress before. I'll talk to their staff. I couldn't get them. I've talked to Brenda Lawrence before because I'm on the board of Grits and Politics here in Detroit, so she's come to our meetings. That's how I met her. 14th Congressional District uh, Representative Brenda Lawrence. Congressional switchboard, 202-224-3121, 202-224-3121. When you call the congressional switchboard, if you get the automated service, it's going to ask for your zip code. And then ask, do you want to speak to uh, your member of the House of Representatives or you want to speak to your U.S. Senators? Okay. Type in your zip code. It'll route you. 202-224-3121. It's the congressional switchboard. Sometimes you may get a live person, okay, but usually you'll get an automated service. Okay, call your member of the U.S. Senate. You don't have to call the House of Representatives. I already passed the House. Call your member of the U.S. Senate. Regardless of whether they're Republican, Democrat, 
or independent. If you live in West Virginia, call and light uh, Joe Manchin's ass up. Okay. If you live in Arizona, call and light Kristen Cinema asses up. If you have Republican senators, call and light their behinds up. Call the congressional switchboard. Tell them to vote yes for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and tell them to vote to repeal qualified immunity. Tell them to vote to repeal qualified immunity. All right, we got to get out of here. We're out of time. Uh, thanks for listening to the African History Network show. Be sure to register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That helps us keep doing the research, pay the bills, stay on the air. When you, when you uh, donate to the African History Network, you support us through Cash App or PayPal. That helps us uh, keep doing the research as well. And then um, all of my DVD lectures are available at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com as well. We have my presentation dealing with um, uh, Black Wall Street uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I've done a two and a half hour lecture dealing with the history of Black Wall Street. Uh, and I go deep into the history also. We have that on uh, DVD and digital download. Uh, we've got my Black Migration 1619 to 2019 um six dvd bundle pack also that includes uh that one includes my presentation dealing with the history of uh uh juneteenth okay so we got the information for the online course here and this class is saturday may 29th click here to register we've got the uh uh my 15 dvd bundle pack the black history month dvd bundle pack click here for that to order that 15 of my lectures uh, the Black Migration 1619 and 2019 DVD bundle pack here is we have DVDs and digital downloads. So all that's at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right, we have to get out of here. Remember the African History Network. We focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace.